Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, friends, thanks for tuning in today. We've got an awesome episode ahead for you as we'll be discussing urticaria, also known as hives, which will affect 10 to 20% of people in their lifetime. Your friends have had hives. People you haven't seen in 10 years will send you pics of their kids with hives. Your mom has probably had hives. All of these people will come to you itchy and want to know why they're getting them. So you have to be prepared with answers and an organized approach for treating urticaria. We'll start the episode with some background information on acute and chronic urticaria, and then finish the episode seeing a patient with hives alongside Dr. Grumpy Pants, and we'll go over some pearls for the H&P, workup, and treatment of these patients. Hives. The very reason I can't sit still, and it turns out, perfectly tied into the reason I can no longer eat chimichangas. I'll explain later, because I have no doubt that you have not a clue as to what I'm talking about. Before we talk urticaria, let's quick go over where we're at on our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. So, the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullous. We are currently going through the third group, the vascular disorders, which we are breaking into eight subgroups, including 1. Erythema multiforme, 2. The toxic erythema group, which has three subgroups, including drug eruptions like SJS or TEN, viral exanthems, and the toxin-mediated eruptions such as staph scalded skin syndrome. Then we covered three, the figurate or gyrate erythemas, such as EAC and erythema migrans, four, urticaria, which you'll all be experts on after today's episode, five, vasculitis, which we'll cover with two episodes that are right around the corner, six, vasculopathy, seven, retiform purpura, and eight, vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Okay, so let's start off with some basic terminology and pathophysiology. Urticaria, often referred to as hives or whelps, is a term that describes recurrent papular or elevated swellings in the dermis. Urticaria can be associated with angioedema, which represents a deeper swelling affecting the deep dermis in sub-Q and typically affects the lips and periorbital areas. Angioedema can have hereditary or acquired forms which affect C1 inhibitor levels or function. However, since this is the urticaria episode, we'll focus on urticaria here on out and start with their classification into acute and chronic forms. And how exactly do we define if urticaria is acute or chronic? Chronic urticaria are defined by having nearly daily or daily episodes of urticaria for six weeks or longer. That six-week mark for chronic urticaria often shows up on exams as well, so it's a good one to know. 
then acute urticaria obviously lasts less than six weeks and does not necessarily occur on a daily basis either. Chronic urticaria can also be subdivided into inducible and spontaneous forms, with inducible cases referring more to the physical urticarias, while spontaneous forms can either be idiopathic or due to all the other triggers that we'll discuss in a minute. One last helpful term to remember is acute intermittent urticaria, which describes cases in the middle of the spectrum. Patients with acute intermittent urticaria will have recurrent bouts of acute urticaria, but they never reach the six-week threshold required for the diagnosis of chronic urticaria. And finally, remember that urticaria can affect patients at any age, but chronic urticaria usually peaks in patients' 20s to 50s. Ah, 50s. I used to think of 50 as being an old man. Now I look at someone that's 50 and think, what a spring chicken. Now that you've got me grumpy, what are the main causes of acute hives? Um, Even though around half of urticaria cases end up being idiopathic, I want you to remember bug, drug, physical, and foods. Again, for the main causes of acute hives, remember bug, drug, physical, and food. Although there are many more causes of acute hives that we'll mention later on in the episode, if you can remember these first four categories, I think that's a solid place to start. The bug in my stupid jingle refers to insect stings and infections, with upper respiratory infections causing 40% of acute urticarias compared to only 5% of chronic urticarias. And even though upper respiratory infections are the most common infectious cause of acute hives, there can be other causative infections like urinary tract infections or gastrointestinal disease caused by a variety of bacterial, viral, fungal, or parasitic infections. Then there's a long list of drugs causing urticaria like I mentioned, and this will make up about 10% of acute cases. And can you tell me the three common culprits for pharmacologic agents causing urticaria? Remember ACE inhibitors, NSAIDs, and opioids. Angioedema and urticaria due to ACE inhibitors can occur months to years after starting the drug, and risk factors include African-American heritage, female sex, atopy, and cigarette smoking. To remember your risk factors for angioedema or urticaria due to ACE inhibitors, picture Whitney Houston sporting some hives, smoking a cigarette, and scratching at her atopic derm. Where do itchy arms go? Also remember that NSAIDs like ibuprofen can also cause or worsen urticaria. This is because NSAIDs are known mast cell degranulators, so they activate mast cells hanging out in our skin and cause them to release histamine and other inflammatory mediators that cause increased vascular permeability, and this leads to swelling in the dermis that we see as hives clinically. Besides NSAIDs, remember that opiates, alcohol, vancomycin, polymyxin B and triple antibiotic ointment, and radiocontrast media. 
Again, some of the mast cell degranulators that worsen urticaria include NSAIDs, opiates, alcohol, vancomycin, polymyxin B in triple antibiotic ointment, and radiocontrast media. Next, we have the physical causes of urticaria, which can present acutely. However, we tend to think of them as chronic-inducible urticarias. Some of these physical causes of urticarias include dermatographism, which is the most common physical urticaria, cold urticaria, which is second most common, then we've got delayed pressure, cholinergic, adrenergic, heat, solar, aquagenic, and vibrational physical urticarias. So again, the physical causes of urticaria include dermatographism, cold, delayed pressure, cholinergic, adrenergic, heat, solar, aquagenic, and vibrational. So let's quickly go over a couple highlights of each of these. Dermatographism, also called dermographism, literally means skin writing, and it refers to a wheel that forms within minutes after stroking or scratching the skin. Simple dermatographism is common and occurs in 5% of normal people, for whom it can become especially problematic in areas with friction, such as around the shirt collar. Then we have cold urticaria, which occurs during the rewarming phase after exposure to cold air or cold water, etc. And what are two reasons that you should not live in Minnesota? I mean, what are two reasons that cold urticaria can be dangerous? Hmm. Two important things to remember for cold urticaria. One is that patients should be counseled against swimming in cold bodies of water, since it can cause a massive histamine release leading to hypotension, syncope, and ultimately drowning. Two is that there are secondary cold contact urticarias due to things like cryoglobulins or hepatitis B and C. Next, we have delayed pressure urticaria, which as the name suggests, is urticaria that develops in areas of pressure but may be delayed up to 12 hours. Common scenarios include urticaria under a tight waistband on pants or under bra straps. Delayed pressure urticaria can also have flu-like symptoms to go with it. Then there's cholinergic urticaria, which are more papular in morphology and typically look like smaller, red, itchy bumps. Cholinergic urticaria are due to sweating and exercise that leads to increased core body temperature. A typical story for cholinergic urticaria is tiny hives that occur right after finishing a hot shower and stepping out into the ambient air. (laughs) Nothing better than a steaming hot 30-minute shower. But mom, why am I getting these itchy bumps afterwards? I don't know. Ask your father. Son, get on over here and let me see them bumps. You're not my freaking dad. Then the remaining four physical urticarias are all quite rare. Adrenergic urticaria have a blanched, vasoconstricted halo and occur after stress-induced release of adrenaline. Heat urticaria occur within minutes of contact with heat. Solar urticaria occurs within minutes of exposure to all types of light, including visible, UVA, or UVB light. These types of light leading to solar urticaria are a common board question, so keep them in mind. Then, the last two rarely encountered physical urticarias are aquagenic urticaria, which occurs after contact with water of any temperature, and then there's vibrational urticaria, which is triggered within minutes of using things like a lawnmower, motorcycle, or jackhammer. Doc, I already got this chromate allergy. Now you want to tell me I got these whelps from my motorcycle? Bugs, drugs, physical and food. 
Okay, so we've talked bug, drug, and physical causes of hives. Now we need to quickly touch on the foods. Food. Foods are actually a rare cause of urticaria, making up less than 1% of cases. It can be due to almost anything, but some of the more common culprits are the same foods that can flare atopic dermatitis. Remember WEMPs, wheat, eggs, milk, peanuts, and soy. Again, remember WEMPs for wheat, eggs, milk, peanuts, and soy. Other common culprits include all my favorite shellfish such as shrimp, scallops, and lobster. Another interesting condition involving food allergies that you may not have heard of is called alpha-gal anaphylaxis. In this condition, patients get bitten by a tick and become sensitized to alpha-galactose in milk and meat. So here's your classic story. You know, Doc, I used to love the beef, but now every time I eat a burger, I get these itchy welts all over me. Me and my wife were hiking in the Appalachians, and I got a couple of tick bites. I didn't get that lime but I'd rather have that lime than not be able to eat a double quarter pounder anymore. Before we discuss some features for chronic urticaria, I want to briefly mention contact urticaria. Remember that allergic contact dermatitis is due to an allergen like poison ivy contacting the skin and causing a type 4 delayed hypersensitivity reaction. Contact urticaria is completely different and can be immunologic or non-immunologic. Immunologic contact urticaria occurs when things like latex, raw meats, or potatoes contact the skin, leading to a type 1 IgE reaction on mast cells. Then there's non-immunologic contact urticaria, which does not involve a type 1 reaction, and it's caused by things such as jellyfish stings or stinging nettles. So again, immunologic contact urticaria is a type 1 reaction to latex, raw meats, or potatoes, whereas a non-immunologic contact urticaria is caused by jellyfish stings or stinging nettles. Next, let's talk some unique features of chronic urticaria. Remember, chronic urticaria are defined by having nearly daily or daily episodes of urticaria for six weeks or longer. We can sum up four of chronic urticaria's unique features by remembering the 30% rule. Number one, 30% of cases are associated with autoantibodies to the IgE receptor on mast cells, or less commonly against IgE itself. Number two, up to 30% of chronic urticaria patients have thyroid autoantibodies. Number three, up to 30% are exacerbated by aspirin. And four, around 30% of chronic urticaria cases will resolve in five years. Again, for chronic urticaria, remember the 30% rule, with 30% of cases being associated with autoantibodies to the IgE receptor, or less commonly to IgE itself. Up to 30% have thyroid autoantibodies, up to 30% are exacerbated by aspirin, and lastly, 30% will resolve in 5 years. Some other things to remember for chronic urticaria is that thyroid disease is not the only associated autoimmune condition. Chronic urticaria can also be associated with type 1 diabetes, lupus, or rheumatoid arthritis. There is also a strong association with psychologic disease, with half of patients displaying anxiety, depression, or somatoform disorders. The psychiatric association is a bit of a chicken and egg problem. Which comes first, the depression or these miserable itchy hives that won't go away? Okay, so that's some background information on urticaria. Let's go to clinic and put some of this knowledge to work. The MA hands you the chart. Listen, kid, this lady's got hives. Go in there, tell her to buy some Benadryl and get out. I don't want to be doing notes during lunch.
You open the door, and to your surprise, what? It's Whitney Houston? Just kidding. R.I.P. Whitney. You walk in and you see a young woman in her 30s with visible hives on her arms. So what questions do we want to ask this patient? Think of it in this order. Get your HPI in the hives, get your big review of systems to rule out systemic disease, and then try figuring out a cause. Starting with the HPI, get your OPQRSTs and ask her how long it has been going on and how often she gets crops of lesions. With those answers, you should be able to categorize the hives into acute, acute intermittent, or chronic urticaria. Next, ask how long do individual lesions last? This last question is important because physical urticarias usually only last a few hours. Other, quote, normal hives usually last a little longer but always less than 24 hours, and lesions of urticarial vasculitis will last longer than 24 hours. I should warn you, though, this question can be a little bit of a struggle sometimes. Sir, has this lesion been there for 24 hours or longer? I've had it four days. But this specific lesion I'm pointing to right here, how long has it been there? I've had the rash for four days, Doc. How about this specific lesion on your hand? If I circled it right now, would it be there tomorrow? Oh, heck, Doc, I don't know. But hey, Doc, I forgot to tell you, my other dermatologist biopsied this rash last week, and he said it was uh, urticarial vasculitis. Is that what you're trying to ask? Next, you get into your review of systems. It is crucial to assess for angioedema and the risk of anaphylaxis, so you'll want to ask about eye or lip swelling, lightheadedness, hoarse voice, throat tightness, shortness of breath, and abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. This is also a good time to warn patients that these are the symptoms that should prompt calling 911 or using an EpiPen if they have it. You can save a life by having this quick conversation. Next, we want to figure out any possible causes or triggers that are present. So remember, bug, drug, physical, and food. Finish your review of systems by asking about signs of infection such as fever, chills, fatigue, runny nose, sore throat, cough, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dysuria, etc. Next, get a good medication history, asking about new medications or the use of medications that can worsen mast cell degranulation, like opioids or NSAIDs. Then ask about physical urticarias and ask whether the patient notices hives in areas of pressure or friction, cold or heat exposure, etc. Then finally, ask if they've tried new foods lately, but keep in mind that it doesn't necessarily have to be a new food, so you want to ask about the more common ones causing hives, like shellfish, nuts, and eggs. So you've covered your bug, drug, physical, and foods. It's always good to get your family history and social history, including travel, work, and hobbies. And lastly, don't forget to assess the psychological impact by asking about stress, any associated depression or anxiety, and how the hives have been affecting the patient's quality of life. Before we get into the physical exam, I want to mention that in real life, you'd be in the room a long time asking all these questions, so it can be handy to give the patient an urticaria questionnaire, go see another patient, and come back and review it with them. There are plenty of these urticaria questionnaires floating around on Google. Alright, so then you want to move on to your physical exam, which is pretty simple. Start out by assessing for dermatographism. Using your fingernail or the wooden end of a cotton tip applicator, scratch the word of the day on the patient's forearm and check it in a few minutes for an urticarial or wheel reaction. 
Next, assess the lesions themselves and note the size and extent of the lesions. Next, look for any coexisting lesions like purpura that would make you worry about urticarial vasculitis. And then, finish up by checking lymph nodes, which could hint you towards an infectious process or hematologic malignancy. And if you're worried about urticarial vasculitis, circle some individual lesions to monitor whether they last for longer than 24 hours. And then, don't forget to recheck the area that you scratched to test for dramatic graphism. Rookie mistake. And don't be like some of my noodle-headed residents who scratch an area and forget to recheck the area for the dermatographism. Okay, congratulations. You have the H&P down. Can you tell me some details that would make you consider urticarial vasculitis? Clinical exam findings that would favor an urticarial vasculitis and prompt more workup include 1. Hive lesions lasting longer than 24 hours, 2. Lesions that are more painful than they are itchy, 3. Associated purpura, and 4. Systemic symptoms, which you would glean from your review of systems. Again, the four triggers for more workup, such as labs or a biopsy in an urticaria patient, are 1. Lesions lasting longer than 24 hours, 2. Lesions that are more painful than they are pruritic, 3. The presence of purpura, or 4. Systemic symptoms. These are all findings that would make you worried about an urticarial vasculitis. Listen here, you narrow-minded ninny-hammer. Urticaria isn't just a condition on its own, it can be a sign of something bigger. Give me three diseases related to urticaria. As far as diseases related to urticaria, think of urticarial vasculitis, serum sickness-like reactions, mastocytosis, and bolus pemphigoid. Again, diseases related to urticaria include urticarial vasculitis, serum sickness-like reactions, mastocytosis, and bolus pemphigoid. And here's a pearl. If you have an older patient with refractory urticaria, two biopsies should be done, one for H&E and a second perilesional sample for direct immunofluorescence. We do this to rule out the urticarial phase of bolus pemphigoid, which is not that uncommon. Not bad for a dunderhead. Tell me about the workup and management for patients with urticaria. If patients are describing what sounds like typical hives, a trial of antihistamines should be tried first before ordering a bunch of expensive tests. But if that isn't cutting it and you think the patient has ongoing exposure, there is other testing to consider. For acute urticaria, various types of allergy testing can be done, which comes in three flavors, skin prick testing, RAS testing, and then patch testing. I'll refer you back to the Atopic Dermatitis podcast where we discuss these around the 17-minute mark. If you are thinking that you need to obtain laboratory studies on a chronic urticaria patient, although I can't imagine you thinking at all, anyways, if your attending tells you that you need to obtain laboratory studies on one of these patients, what labs would you order and why?
Remember that chronic urticaria can be associated with other autoimmune conditions such as thyroid disease, diabetes, vitiligo, and rheumatoid arthritis, so this guides some of the labs that we want to consider. A typical lab panel for urticaria includes a CBC for signs of infection, ESR, ANA, TSH and free T4, antithyroglobulin, and possibly stool, ova, and parasites. A CBC with differential could show an elevated white count suggestive of infection or an eosinophilia suggesting a parasitic infection or an allergic diathesis. An ESR is usually normal in plain Jane chronic urticaria but can be elevated in urticarial vasculitis or the rare cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes that can cause urticaria. The thyroid studies are obviously assessing for autoimmune thyroid disease, the ANA screens for other autoimmune disease, and the ONP is for underlying parasitic infections leading to hives. So you've considered allergy testing and drawing blood? Would you do a biopsy? And don't you dare suggest a biopsy without being able to tell me what you are looking for on the biopsy. Biopsy doesn't typically show much epidermal change, but beneath that you'll see superficial dermal edema and a perivascular and interstitial mixed infiltrate with neutrophils more so than eosinophils and lymphocytes. Notice that I didn't mention mast cells, which usually aren't increased in number in acute urticaria, but may be increased in chronic urticaria cases. Notice that I also didn't mention vascular damage. If your pathologist mentions this, urticarial vasculitis needs to be considered. Congratulations. Even a balloon brain such as yourself can diagnose urticaria. Getting them better is always another story. Can you name the different types of antihistamines? The mainstay of treatment is going to be identifying and removing any underlying triggers along with starting second generation antihistamines. Antihistamines are broken down into H1 and H2 blockers. H1 blockers are going to be most helpful, whereas the H2 blockers are less helpful and consist of drugs like ranitidine that are typically used for GI issues like GERD. So let's focus on the H1 blockers. It's important to know that there are first and second generation H1 antihistamines, which have major differences. The first generation H1 antihistamines have more anticholinergic side effects like dry mouth and they are more sedating because they cross the blood-brain barrier and they decrease the actions of histamine on the brain, which acts as an arousal hormone that keeps us awake. So with less histamine arousing us, we get sleepy. Examples of H1 antihistamines include diphenhydramine, aka Benadryl. Then there's the second generation H1 antihistamines, which are typically non-sedating and have much fewer anticholinergic side effects. These include loratadine, aka Claritin, fexofenadine, aka Allegra, and cetirizine, aka Zyrtec. So as I mentioned, we start by removing triggers and start a second-generation antihistamine for these patients. If this isn't cutting it, patients can safely increase the dose of the non-sedating antihistamine every few days and up to four times the recommended dose. Other options include adding another second-generation antihistamine, adding an H2 receptor antagonist such as cimetidine or ridididine, adding a leukotriene receptor antagonist such as monilucast, or adding a first-generation antihistamine like diphenhydramine or hydroxazine at bedtime.
Again, options beyond increasing the dose of the second-generation antihistamine includes 1. Adding another second-generation antihistamine, 2. Adding an H2 receptor antagonist such as cimetidine or ranitidine, 3. Adding a leukotriene receptor antagonist such as monoleucast, or 4. Adding a first-generation antihistamine like diphenhydramine or hydroxyzine at bedtime. I wager everyone in your generation is looking for the 10th generation antihistamine to help you go to sleep because you refuse to put down that distraction device you call a telephone. I digress. So what if the antihistamines aren't cutting it or you have a patient that is severely affected? Other stronger systemic treatments include short courses of corticosteroids, UV treatments such as UVB, doxepin, cyclosporin, or omalizumab, a.k.a. Zolaire. Omalizumab is a monoclonal antibody against serum IgE that is injected every four weeks and is usually started in an allergist's office. Other less commonly used treatments in refractory cases that I'll quick mention include dapsone and colchicine, both of which make sense since they affect neutrophil migration, and that's what we're seeing on our biopsies. For more information on these urticaria treatments and others like methotrexate, there's a great CME article on urticaria in the October 2018 JAD that I'll refer you to. So, that's all we've got for urticaria. I know it was a big episode, but there's some really great pearls in there. Let's take a little mental breather before we sum up the highlights. Urticaria are divided into acute and chronic forms. Acute cases last less than six weeks, while chronic urticaria are defined by having nearly daily or daily episodes for six weeks or longer. Chronic urticaria can also be subdivided into inducible and spontaneous forms, with inducible cases referring more to the physical urticarias, while spontaneous forms are due to everything else. Even though around half of cases of urticaria end up being idiopathic, I want you to remember bug, drug, physical, and foods. Bug refers to infections like upper respiratory infections, which are more likely in acute cases. Drug refers to a medication reaction, such as NSAIDs or ACE inhibitors. Physical urticarias can be due to dermatographism, cold, delayed pressure, cholinergic, adrenergic, heat, solar, aquagenic, and vibrations. Then we have foods, which are a much less common cause, with shellfish and nuts being the common culprits. Then for chronic urticaria, remember our 30% rule, with 30% of cases being associated with autoantibodies to the IgE receptor or less commonly to IgE itself. Up to 30% have thyroid autoantibodies, up to 30% are exacerbated by aspirin, and 30% will resolve in 5 years. You may recall that when we started the morning, I mentioned how my hives may be somehow related to gastrointestinal upset. I will not ask you a question on this because I am tired of seeing you fail. For the sake of your poor, poor future patients, remember, H. pylori may be present in 30% of chronic urticaria cases. For diagnosis, remember that it's usually clinical. Some options include allergy testing, which can be done via skin prick testing, RAS testing, or patch testing. 
Labs to consider include a CBC, ESR, ANA, TSH, and free T4, antithyroglobulin, and possibly stool ova and parasites. Then a biopsy will show superficial dermal edema and a perivascular and interstitial mixed infiltrate with more neutrophils than eosinophils and lymphocytes. Treatment involves removing the trigger and second-generation antihistamines. Treatment can be escalated by increasing the dose, adding another second-generation antihistamine, adding an H2 receptor antagonist, adding a leukotriene receptor antagonist, or adding a first-generation antihistamine at bedtime. Other treatments to consider include short courses of corticosteroids, UV treatments such as UVB, doxepin, cyclosporin, or omalizumab. And that's urticaria for you all. I know that's a lot of info thrown at you, but re-listening to the episode will help more and more of it stick. So thanks again for tuning in. I'm Logan Kolb. I hope you join us again next time for the first of a four-part series on vasculitis, vasculopathy, and the purpuric rashes. Have a great day and take a little time for you. You've earned it. You know, I never considered rap music a form of art, but I bet I could throw down a few rhymes, as the millennials say. Let's just give it a go. Is this thing on? Ah, would somebody please turn up the bass? I want to break your windows, as the millennials would say. Here's a song about hives. You're lucky I'm alive. The name's Dr. Grumpy Pants. I'll teach you how to thrive. You better find a cause for this itchy urticaria. I'll kick you out the door and hope you get malaria. Bug, drug, physical, and food. You better get it down or you'll put me in a mood. I get a little grumpy from bird brain residents, but call the AAD because I'm about to be the president. Your brain is churning and yearning for all the derm that you're finna be learning. But I don't care what you think about me, cause I know I'm the best and that's a guarantee. I'll name that rash like my pal Dr. Grandpa, lance that cyst like I'm Dr. Pimple Popper. I got great cause I read every book, I can name that rash with just a single look. Bug, drug, physical and food. You better get it down or you'll put me in a mood. I get a little grumpy from bird brain residents, but call the AAD cause I'm about to be the president. You go to the meeting, you know I'm presenting These cosmetic patients are so unrelenting I'm freezing, I'm squeezing, you know I'm diagnosing Argue with me and your brain will be fibrosing Never reading books, always on your phone You're just a pest like a greasy comedon Alright, I'm out, it's time to have some brandy Here's my CV, it's the best eye candy Anyone with one of those ridiculous bouncing cars, I recommend you push the bounce button right now. Let your hubcaps spin and turn it up a notch. More bass, Gary, more bass. Perhaps an air horn. Do you have any DJs to scream their name randomly? DJ Pearl Podcast. Pearl, Pearl, Pearl Podcast. Pearl, Pearl, Pearl Podcast. Let's class it up a bit. We need a violin, maybe a cello. How about a saxophone? What about a banjo for our southern folks? Don't tell me you have a gong in there, too. 
This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone Podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.